Europe Out Loud, a podcast about Europe's history, culture, and civilization. Brought to you by the Martin Center with Frederico Reo. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Europe Out Loud, our podcast series that brings European culture and history to bear on problems of contemporary EU politics and policy. Today, we are going to have shorter solo episode after many guest episodes in previous month. And um, as usual, we have picked a topic that is highly important in the current EU debate, and that's the issue of protecting fundamental EU values. Now, this uh, has been certainly a bit overshadowed by the Ukraine war in the East, but it remains prominent because, as many of you may know, for example, the European Commission has decided over the last few weeks to activate for the first time a new rule of law mechanism agreed upon in 2020, but suspended for a long time because there was a case in course before the European Court of Justice that was settled uh, only recently. And the Commission decided to trigger this mechanism that would allow the EU to withhold EU funds to Hungary in this case, as a country in which systematic violations of the, the rule of law exist. The issue was very controversial at the time when it was agreed in 2020. And in general, it has been, uh, it has triggered a rather inflamed uh, debate. To an extent, also during the Slovenian presidency, this issue of uh, um, the rule of law was uh, was taken up. I'll do it in two parts. The first part will uh, give a little bit of the historical background, trying to explain why this issue has become so prominent over the last few years. It has not been so for many decades of European integration. Why now we see this upsurge in relevance of uh, the protection of fundamental rights? And also in the second part, uh, some thoughts, some observations on how we can maximize the effectiveness and legitimacy of EU action in this field while minimizing the potential for conflicts within member states and between member states, which is very high, as some of what I have said already shows. So the, the first part, I think understanding what brought us here, why the issue has become so prominent and so salient, requires a bit retracing very briefly the evolution, the transformation of the EU or of European integration, let's say, from a process of limited objectives, as it used to be at its beginning, to an all-encompassing union of values, which is what it has become, particularly with the uh, Lisbon Treaty and after the uh, Lisbon Treaty. Now, at the beginning in the 1950s, as we know, the, the, the European integration was mostly a community of interest in pursuit of specifically defined goals, which were contained in the treaties. But very quickly already in the 1960s, some developments forced the issue of values on the agenda. What were those developments? I think essentially, on the one hand, the increase in strength and scope of EU action and EU law. We know that in the 1960s, for example, uh, the European Court of Justice uh, spectacularly constitutionalized EU law enshrining particularly the principle of supremacy of EU law over national constitutions, but also the scope of EU law moved to enlarged, you know, with subsequent uh, treaties, starting particularly from the, from the Single European Act, but also to an extent before through the case law of the European Court of Justice. So all of a sudden we had a European law that was very strong, that could enforce itself above national uh, constitutions, and uh, uh, that was um, very all-encompassing. And this raised the 
the problem of the risk if we if we wish that um, uh, the basic principles protected in national constitutions could be uh, circumvented somehow through EU action, um, which was, you know, now EU law being superior to, to national constitutions, this posed a, a, an issue. And this is a little bit counterintuitive, maybe, um, uh, uh, let's say, in the context of current debates, which are mostly about the EU acting as a guardian of individual rights against um, offending member states. But the, the fa in, in fact, the origins of the EU involvement in these fields are about um, making sure that the basic principles protected in national constitutions will not be undermined by European initiatives. Uh, the other big trend that I think um, uh, um, sort of explained this transition from necessitated this transition from a union of limited objectives to a union of values is the enlargement process. Um, the first enlargement was uh, relatively harmless from this point of view because it was uh, an enlargement to three consolidated democracies, Denmark, um, uh, the UK and Ireland. But the subsequent enlargements were uh, done to member states, welcome member states, which were more recent and fragile democracies in the South, Spain, Portugal, Greece, um, and then most prominently in the East after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And that's when the issue of defining a common set of values that everybody had to abide by somehow uh, became uh, prominent, uh, values that essentially then would become those defined in Article 2, democracy, fundamental rights, and the rule of law. Uh, the Treaty of Lisbon has completed this, uh, this process, because if you read the treaty, you will see that for the first time, EU values are listed before EU goals. Article 2 is dedicated to EU values. Article 3 is dedicated to EU goals. And this gives a sense that the goals, the union is not about specific goals only. It is about pursuing the broad values that it is the task of the EU institution also to interpret in an ambitious way. And this, I think, explains why post-Lisbon, the European institutions have uh, felt that they could and that they should step up their action in uh, the protection of uh, new values. Not to be forgotten also the fact that uh, the Lisbon Treaty has, has attributed to the Charter of Fundamental Rights the same legal value as the treaties. So once again, emphasizing you know, the, the, the value dimension of the union. So that's the first reason why this has become prominent. The, the union has transformed profoundly over the last decades and particularly post-Lisbon. The second reason um, is a more cultural political one, and it also helps us to explain why this has become so controversial, and it is uh, the relentless rise of identity politics. This is also a development of the last few decades, I would say, or the last 20 years. It is a development that comes to us from the US, as we know, uh, but that um, uh, has now become um, very present also in the European debate. It has been studied in a very interesting book, among others, by Francis Fukuyama, uh, I think two or three years ago. And yeah, it, it, it signals a move from a, a rights which are based on a universal notion of human dignity, which was the case in liberal democracies before that, to loud and very often rather resentful demands for the recognition of one's uh, specific group identity. Uh, which is variously defined based on nation, religion, sect, race, ethnicity, or gender. And uh, this, uh, as you see, includes both phenomena that are usually considered progressive and left-wing, take 
the so-called political correctness, radical fem feminism or the various pride movements. Um, but it also includes uh, uh, movements that are typically treated as regressive and right-wing. For example, the populist nationalism that went to power in some Western countries in the last uh, 10, 15 years, including the US with, uh, with Trump. All of these are instances of identity politics in which the focus shifts on one's own tribe, which it can be variously defined. It can be the nation, it can be the ethnicity, it can be, uh, it can be the gender, and so on and so forth. And uh, this, as also Fukuyama well explains in his book, is, uh, contains a very strong potential for continuing conflict between tribes, between groups. Uh, and indeed, it has brought about great conflict both in uh, the US and in the uh, EU. Um, we see that a lot of our politics has by now become um, you know, a matter of culture wars. Uh, in, in federal unions such as the US and the EU, this also has the additional complication that it does not stay within states, it also spills over uh, in the shared space that is guaranteed by the union. And we saw also in, um, in uh, the EU, uh, both a rise in conservative and in progressive uh, identity politics. Uh, the rise in conservative identity politics is manifested in uh, the illiberal democratic trends that, has, that have taken hold in many member states, in which in pursuit of conservative policies, uh, we witness a systematic undermining of checks and balances, um, of the freedom of the press, uh, of the freedom of universities, of the freedom of civil society, and so on. But we also see an, a, a rise of progressive uh, identity politics in the form of political correctness, which uh, from which EU institutions have not been immune. Um, for example, uh, we see that uh, many uh, European Parliament resolution, resolutions champion the most progressive understandings possible of um, EU values and that have multiplied over the years. And they often fail to make any difference between strict um, rule of law, let's say, um, uh, procedural aspects, such as the ones I have mentioned, and more uh, morally loaded and divisive issues, such as family structures, such as uh, um, gay marriage, such as gender stereotypes, and so on and so forth. Uh, there is a tendency to conflate the two also within uh, EU institutions. Uh, the von der Leyen Commission, as we know, has a, a whole new portfolio for equality, which aims to construct a union of equality in, in which clearly very politically correct interpretations inspired by progressive identity politics are contained. So I think this is the other piece of explanation that we need to use to understand why this is so contentious. There is the dual opposed movements of identity politics in the form of conservative liberal democracy and progressive identity politics, which makes make for an explosive mix in the contemporary EU debate on uh, fundamental EU values. Now, briefly on uh, what can be done, I mean, some observations on how to defuse this, this ideological bomb, how to make sure that EU action has maximum effectiveness and legitimacy and minimizes the potential of conflict that is inherent in such in such questions. And I think the key issue is to adopt as an ideologically neutral approach as possible, to stand as much as possible above the demands of both progressive and conservative identity politics. And this is what I think can guarantee that EU institutions are most credible to enforce the essential core of fundamental values, which also happens to be the least ideologically charged uh, aspects of fundamental values. 
essentially basic civil and political rights, freedom of speech, uh, life, private property, freedom from violent crime, freedom of religion, fair trial provisions, basic checks and balances. There is no doubt that these issues have to be enforced uh, forcefully in any federal union that works properly. And the EU is uh, one such federal union. Maybe two or three observations of what should be avoided, um, ideally. So the first is that the history of federal unions, and we have a rich history of federal union, uh, teaches us, I think, that moral disagreements are not always soluble within them. And that therefore it is best to keep federal union as much as possible out of the most moral, the most divisive aspects of morality policy. We see that in today's EU also issues such as family structures, gender relations, LGTB rights, social rights, the relation between state and churches, the role of religious symbols in public life are still highly sensitive and divisive issues between member states and within uh, member states. It is advisable for the EU to minimize its involvement in this area, but I would say that American federalism has been rather successful overall in accommodating uh, a variety of very explosive issues and in tolerating a, a wide range of diversity on such things with, as capital punishment, abortion, racial segregation, um, alcohol prohibition, pornography, gambling, sex education, same-sex marriage, a variety of issues that, that is much broader than the differentiation of, of moral values that exist in Europe. So I, I think it's important to learn to, to live with different national cultures on, on some, at least, of these issues and to avoid heightening conflicts that can get out of control. Uh, and this, of course, requires also some political maturity and self-restraint on the side of uh, of uh, federal institutions, which they, they don't necessarily have to embrace the most ambitious interpretations of uh, concepts and rights. They can restrain themselves based on the prevailing consensus of different societies. And, and this leads me maybe to my uh, second observation. That my second observation would be that fundamental values, fundamentally your values, but I would say fundamental values in federal unions, generally speaking, also have to be interpreted with a reference to subsidiarity and with a reference to national identities, which also are basic EU values. Article 5, of course, protects subsidiarity. Article 4 recognizes um, national identities. And here we see a change of attitude in uh, uh, European courts and European institutions more generally in the last um, one or two decades or so, uh, because for a long time, uh, European courts, for example, ensure the core protection of basic rights while extending to states a generous latitude to interpret these rights in light of their differing preferences and traditions. It's always a very tricky balance to strike, but it must be stricken in a, in a well-functioning federal union. More recently, an attitude has prevailed that shared this sort of cautious approach and um, embraced a more aggressive championing somehow of uh, prevailing progressive values. Maybe a final uh, sort of observation. The, the final and politically most difficult uh, one is that uh, every expansion and, and strict enforcement of supranational rights implies also a marginalization of national democratic institutions because everything that is that becomes a right is taken out of the national democratic debate and uh, uh, it becomes a legal, a legal obligation somehow. So we, again, here, there is a need for balance uh, because 
it's certainly one of the reasons why the populist rebellions of the last few years occurred. The, the feeling that more and more issues were taken out of the, the, the democratic debates that was allowed and were becoming somehow legal provisions that had to be observed. So I go to, I conclude very briefly, uh, simply summarizing that there are very strong reasons in a federal union like the EU to ensure a very ambitious protection of fundamental values and of the rule of law. Uh, but there is also a balance to strike that allows as much as possible these values to be filtered through the different experiences, cultures, uh, preferences of different national and local communities. So there is a balance to strike and this balancing act um, is largely incumbent on the supranational institutions. I should say in conclusion that a major data-driven study that the Martin Center has commissioned and that will be published in uh, in the next few weeks, confirms the validity of these observations. It confirms that there is throughout the Union, including in the most conservative member states, such as Hungary and Poland, overwhelming support for a very ambitious enforcement of fundamental EU values and the rule of law, including sanctions for the countries that violate them. Uh, these values are universally considered um, um, basic requirements for EU membership. So this, this should be an encouragement for the EU to be ambitious in the enforcement of basic values in the rule of law. But at the same time, the study also confirms that there is a strong potential for cultural backlashes if EU standards are extended to include such morally loaded issues as abortion, as uh, gender relations, uh, gay marriage, and so on. Uh, here, there are important uh, states in which democratic majorities are opposed to this conflation. And in all member states, there are important parts of public opinion that are skeptical towards it. Therefore, it's a matter of balance. It's a matter of finding the right equilibrium. Thank you very much. That was today's episode of Europe Out Loud. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.